This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now?, the podcast formerly known as Romaniacs. Since last week, we've had some good news. The confirmation of Joe Biden's victory over Donald Trump, a thinly veiled government U-turn on free school meals, a defeat in the law to the internal market bill, and the promise of a COVID-19 vaccine in the near future. It's all very confusing for us, but don't worry, there'll be plenty of bad stuff to talk about as well. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Alex Andreu is a writer, actor, and polymathic gadabout. Hello, Alex. Hello. Which of these cheering stories has made you happiest this week? Well, um, on on the principle that everything except death is fixable, um, it, it has to be those encouraging vaccine news. Although the promise of normality did send me into a serious calculation of when do I need to start dieting in order to get into anything with a non-elasticated waist. <laughs> You, you, you're fully, you've you fully got lockdown bod. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so the massive Lord's defeat, 433 votes to 165, was particularly delicious because Brexit peer Claire Fox argued <laughs> for the government's bill but accidentally voted against it. What happens next with this bill? Okay, so final report stage in the Lords is scheduled to start on the 18th of November after which, if the government don't back down, a bit of ping-pong between the two, after which the government could try and shove the bill through with the offending clauses using the Parliament Acts. But they can only do that in the next session, which doesn't start until the 7th of January, after the recess. So what is happening is nothing. The bill's controversial aspects have been killed by the Lords and will be superseded by what happens in the negotiations. Nina Schick is a broadcaster, commentator and author of Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. Hi, Nina. Hi, Dorian. So the cheap fakes you talk about in your book went viral this week when a CNN clip appeared to show anchor John King, the new hero of British politics watches, um, hastily shutting a Pornhub tab that appeared on his screen, which obviously uh, was not real. Then the Washington Times had to point out that a front page seeming to show them calling the 2000 election for Al Gore was a sort of old fashioned Photoshop fake. So one of these was silly. uh, One was quite sinister. Does their virality show that a lot of people are ill-equipped to process even crude fakes, let alone the more sophisticated ones? Absolutely. And if you look at how cheap fakes, so basically any kind of manipulated media, miscontextualized or um, crudely edited videos or photos have been going viral over not only the course of this election only, but over the course of you know political events during the last five years, you can see that 
quality or fidelity isn't necessarily going to be an indicator of how many people are convinced. You mentioned the Washington Post fake headline, but there have been a lot of other cheap fakes that have been devastating going viral over the past few days as well. And these are things like what turns out to be a photographer moving his camera equipment. Uh, allegedly, this is supposed to be, you know, election officials throwing away ballots. So people are very ill-equipped to even deal with the crudest cheap fakes, you know, miscontextualized or manipulated pieces of media. So that's why when kind of the AI version of manipulated media is here, uh, we're in for a bit of a wild ride, given that we can't even distinguish what cheap fakes are. We have a special guest this week. She's a staff writer of the New York Times magazine, a fellow at Yale Law School, and the author of two nonfiction bestsellers, Sticks and Stones and Charged. But listeners may know her best from the Slate Political Gab Fest. Back in 2008, that was the first podcast I ever listened to regularly, and this podcast owes quite a bit to its vibe and structure, as she may notice. <laughs> so now I, f- I feel like mm-hmm. Noel Gallagher when he got to play on a cover version of Come Together with Paul McCartney. I'm very pleased to welcome Emily Bazelon. Hi, Emily. Hi, that was way too exciting an intro for me. I'm never going to live up to it. <laughs> you just have to be compared to Paul McCartney. It's not It's not hard. Exactly. <laughs> um, we'll talk about Trump's uh, refusal to concede later, but where were you when Pennsylvania was, was called and the networks uh, called Joe Biden's victory on Saturday? I was at my house because that's where everybody is. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you I celebrate... Was, I was in Philadelphia on Tuesday for Election Day because I wanted to be in a state in which people's vote mattered on the day that people were at the polls. And it was actually... I grew up in Philadelphia. It was quite moving to go around to different polling places in uh, North Philadelphia and West Philadelphia, particularly... um, and see just hundreds of people lined up at the polls, um, determined to vote. And in my neighborhood in New Haven, Connecticut, when Pennsylvania was called, there were a lot of um, horns and people running around outside, just uh, ready to kind of feel a sense of relief about the resolution of the election. So David Plott said on the post-election GabFest that without Trump gobbling up all the oxygen, there will be space to discuss sort of other political issues like you uh, used to do in those pre-2016 days. Um, what sort of long-term problems would you like to see get more attention in the future, things that perhaps have been neglected during the Trump years? Well, I mean, I think that climate change is just looming as this international, you know, potential long-term catastrophe for the planet, and the United States has not been doing its part to address that. And so I look forward to having lots of opportunity to talk about that, but also to watch people actually work on it. And then I think, you know, in the last six or seven months in the United States, there's been more focus on Uh, injustice in terms of, you know, racial inequality, in terms of the way um, black people are often treated by the police. I mean, this is obviously like an eternal long running problem for us. But I hope the country continues to focus on those issues and also on class inequality. Um, I think there are a lot of ways in which American life is deeply unfair to people across race. And, you know, often if you can... um, frame the problem in that way, then you can get more support across different racial and ethnic categories for addressing it. And so I hope that we can have a kind of, you know, ambitious COVID relief um, 
program that that you know does like actually build an economy that divides wealth better between the capital and the worker class, which is, you know, I'm using these kind of Marxist terms, but when you look at the way in which wealth is increasingly concentrated at the top, it's really staggering. Hmm. Coming up, what does the US election result mean for the UK, Europe and the rest of the world? Will Biden's win change the shape of Brexit? And what will election loser, one-term president Donald Trump do next? And why are politicians still so bad at Twitter? As we enter the last days of the Twitter-in-Chief, we'll talk about the do's and don'ts of political <laughs> tweeting and whether it might be wiser to avoid it altogether, says somebody who spends all the time on Twitter. Don't forget, you can support the show and all our work by backing us on Patreon. Pledge anything from £2 a month upwards to get the podcast early without ads, the chance to ask questions in our new section, But Your Emails, plus our exciting new Oh God, What Now merchandise, which we're releasing soon. And there's yet more exciting news coming about the podcast next week, and Patreon people will be the first to know. So search Patreon, Oh God, What Now podcast, or go to patreon.com slash Oh God, What Now, all one word. First this week, Dear Joe, I wrote you, but you still ain't calling. Brexiter John Redwood has written to President-elect Biden to say, quote, the UK's EU referendum gave us a larger percentage mandate for exit than your own convincing win. So you will understand the importance to us of becoming a truly independent country again on 1st of January next year. I'm sure he's going to get, Joe Biden's going to get right on that. (laughs) But Redwood has been outflanked by the Brexit crank squad who refused to accept that Biden has won at all. Emily, like the killer at the end of a horror movie who isn't dead after all, uh, the idea of a disputed election has returned. Much of the GOP and conservative media have rode in behind Trump's unfounded claims of election fraud. How dangerous is this? I mean, it's dangerous. I, I feel such dread about this topic. And it's not because I think the election results will be overturned. It's because of the illegitimacy that is being sown about the election. And that because of the power of disinformation, I think a lot of people are going to believe. And that is that kind of division and fracturing is just really bad for the country. And I I think also as someone who writes about legal issues, and I've written a lot about election administration and voting rights um, leading up to this election, I just am honestly shocked that the very basic core of the democracy, which is the capacity to have an incumbent leave office and be replaced by the person the voters chose to replace him, I, I just kind of can't believe that people are willing to um, play around with that and seem to not value how precious it is um, the way that I think that it deserves to be valued. I mean, it is the most important thing about a country that democracy continue. And so to me, the, to put that at risk in any way, it just is super irresponsible. And if it's not about um, actually succeeding and overturning the result, what is it? I've got, I have four options for you. Um, we have delegitimizing the Biden presidency, pandering to Trump's ego, raising money from suckers to pay off campaign debts, and stoking Republican turnout for the Senate runoff elections in Georgia in January. Or you can have all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> and I think that you don't have to choose if you're the Republicans because you can rest fairly assured that your base is not going to punish you for this kind of conduct. And in fact, like you said, may be energized to come out for these key Georgia Senate runoff races in January. 
Um, that's the sort of state of play right now. It's a real difference between the parties in the United States. And honestly, if there is one thing I could change about the political landscape in the United States, it would be this. Because if we have a Republican Party that thinks that delegitimizing an election, like not just Joe Biden, but an election, is a useful tool for whipping people into, you know, partisan behavior, like that, that is what I see as so dangerous here. And I mean, obviously, ev- everything that's sort of coming out of the White House now, people are kind of reading rather anxiously. Um, how do you interpret the departure of Richard Pilger, director of the DOG's election crimes unit? You know, I see it as a warning sign. There are a lot of alarm bells that are going off inside and outside the government. And I think Richard Pilger, who had had this job, um, this sensitive position in our Justice Department, um, overseeing election crimes and investigations, he'd had it for a long time. And I think he's saying, I don't want to be party to what comes next. This order that Attorney General William Barr issued suggesting that it was appropriate to Uh, investigate allegations of fraud before an election has been certified is very much at odds with the traditional practice in which prosecutors do everything they can to make sure not to suggest that there is a problem with the election results um, close to an election. And we have lots of laws and precedents on the book in the United States that once an election is over, there are certain procedures for recounts and you can challenge it, but you have to meet a very high bar. It is really hard to um, have a recount show up with anything other than like a few hundred votes changing in one direction or another. And to prove that an election is illegitimate, you have to show that but for what you're alleging and have real evidence for, the election would have turned out differently. There is nothing so far in the Trump campaign's court challenges that suggests anything like that. And, you know, we have our crazy electoral college system. That means multiple states would have to be in play to have their, I mean, it's just so far-fetched. And as we were saying, there is a cost to, you know, just sort of playing out the string here. And how long could Trump keep this up? I mean, could it be until the uh, electoral colleges, uh, the electors are seated in December? I mean, that in a lot of ways is a choice of the courts. If judges dismiss these actions quickly and they go up the chain of appeal, but again, those decisions to um, deny these claims are swift, then I think you see a fairly prompt resolution. If the courts, you know, start ordering hearings and prolong the proceedings, then they're going to keep going because it's clear that there is not enough force in the Republican Party to get President Trump to back down that way. Alex, on Sophie Ridge on Sunday, Dominic Raab couldn't bring himself to agree with the basic principle that all the votes should be counted. What what is he scared of? Why could he not just say that uncontroversial thing? What is Dominic Raab scared of? Um, Doorknobs? I don't know. I mean, the, the short answer is he's scared of a nutcase with a smartphone. Because who knows what clip might be played by Fox and trigger Trump into a sort of two-day rage-tweeting session about how Britain has betrayed him. Um, Remember, there's a sizable chunk of the Tory vote, let's call it loosely the Farage-leaning chunk, which they have worked very hard to bring into their tent, but which without a doubt trusts Trump much more than it trusts Johnson. The narrative for some time has been that the anti-Brexit pro-Island Joe would drive a harder bargain mm. than Trump. Um, 
Anand Menon uh, just wrote a piece um, saying that actually it probably wouldn't make much difference at all. Um, mm. What do you think? Well, I, I disagree with Anand. I think it will make a difference, um, but not not in the way most people perceive. I mean, I think Biden will have certain red lines, certainly in relation to the Good Friday agreements, um, possibly on environmental issues, but at least Biden will bargain. Because what has Trump actually done on this, other than tweeted sort of empty promises? Has he exempted the UK from the punitive tariffs that he's applied to the whole of the EU? No. Has he given way on any of the US's negotiating priorities? Has he helped hand over Ansacoulas? I mean, anyone would rather be dealing with Biden than Trump on trade matters. And the other thing, I suppose, is is the personalities here, that Johnson isn't very popular with Democrats. Uh, mm. Last year, Biden called him a physical and emotional clone of Trump. Uh, for bom- former Obama aide Tommy Vitor, now in Pod Save America, uh, responded to Johnson's congratulations, saying, this shape-shifting creep weighs in. We will never forget your racist comments <laughs> about Obama and slavish devotion to Trump. Then again, Biden, you know, makes a big thing of the fact that he's willing to kind of, you know, work across the aisle and he's willing to be a sort of bridge builder. So do you think that this kind of like, uh, this sort of bad blood will be, um, you know, overcome by just by just pragmatism? I, I think at the core of that question is the illusion that in a trade deal, somehow uh, the US might favour the UK over the EU, or anyone might favour the UK over the EU. I mean, it's not a zero-sum game. Most countries will look to deal with both unless we really piss off the European Union. But the truth is that the basis of trade does not only reside in the text of an agreement. It doesn't live just in the four corners of that document. It lives in the margins, too, in how things are prioritized and interpreted. And that does depend on goodwill. So will Biden's administration go out of its way to punish Johnson for being a twat? No. But will it go out of its way to make a deal with the UK a priority? Also, no. (laughs) Um, Nina, beyond Brexit, um, are there lots of areas that the UK and the new US administration can agree on, whether that's like sort of attitudes to China, Russia, the Iran deal? Are are there sort of lots of reasons outside of Brexit to be optimistic for cooperation? Yeah, I think on precisely those areas, I mean, the UK hasn't been seeing eye to eye with Trump on Russia, on climate change, on reviving the Iran deal. And it's worth remembering, especially on Russia, that the UK is actually one of the hawkiest countries um, within the European Union, although we're no longer in the European Union. And when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, the UK was absolutely instrumental towards pushing the EU towards taking... um, fighting fighting hard on taking sanctions on on Russia. Mm. Um, Biden has also already made clear that both climate change and cooperation, global cooperation on COVID are going to be amongst the top priorities for for his administration. So I think, yeah, on all of these issues, the British government will actually find that it's easier to deal with Biden than it is to deal with Trump. Um, and you think, obviously, NATO would be would be pretty happy as well. Um, a former Italian ambassador to NATO said, what is difficult to repair is the fear that this could happen again. So even if Biden does rebuild sort of America's global leadership role, is it diminished forever now that the rest of the world has seen, um, you know, that the, the, the wrong president can kind of uh, 
just do away. Yeah, with I it. would say that Biden's victory, on the surface at least, is good news in the sense that he believes in a multilateral approach and he believes in resurrecting the kind of Western alliance. My own engagement with Biden came when I was advising the former NATO Secretary General, and Biden joined a group of global leaders that was looking at preventing election interference as well as looking at how to resurrect the transatlantic alliance. However, how much can one man do to turn around what is already a broader trend of American disengagement, isolationism, and abandonment of the role-based liberal order, which it itself built? And this has been going on for a long time. It really started under Clinton, under Bush, and accelerated dramatically under both Obama and Trump. So I think the kind of system that we're talking about has already really been hollowed out. And I don't think that Biden, the one man, can basically turn around the decline. And while many world leaders have been congratulating Biden, the autocrat club, Putin, Erdogan, Orban, that lot, uh, have been dragging their heels. Have they lost an important ally here on a practical level or just a sort of figurehead for their style of politics? I mean, it's uh, uh, from a PR perspective, the fact that Trump no longer inhabits the White House is a blow to these autocrats. Nonetheless, Biden himself is a pragmatist. And I don't think that you he wouldn't deal with these world leaders where you know, where necessary. Um, although it is, of course, a blow to 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 the bad boy autocrats of the world. Emily, Democrats worry about what uh, Biden can do with a Republican-controlled Senate, if indeed that's that's how it turns out in January, and a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. But the president still has a lot of power. Um, what do you think Biden will be able to do straight away, you know, in that symbolic first 100 days, even with those obstacles? Yeah. So, you know, we have this power of the presidency and the executive branch through the federal agencies and then through executive orders. And so I think you'll see a kind of flurry of reversals, like rejoining the deal with Iran to prevent the, the uh, nuclear, the building of nuclear weapons there, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, uh, and then some more domestic priorities like empowering unions in a way that Trump's National Labor Relations Board has moved in the opposite direction. You'll start to see unwinding of recent rules made at the Environmental Protection Agency to try to make sure that we're doing more to address greenhouse gases and, uh, you know, dirtier forms of energy. Let's see what else is on the kind of immediate laundry list. I think reversing the travel ban, sending more signals to the world that America, you know, welcomes people from all kinds of different countries, increasing visa applications for high-skilled immigrants who are coming to work in the United States, making it easier again for students to come study here. These are real strengths of the United States that I think Trump um, and some of the people who work for him deliberately weakened. And so there are a range of ways in which Biden, just based on the power of the presidency, can kind of reverse some of the, from my point of view, worst policy errors of the Trump administration. What is going to be much harder and perhaps will prove to be almost impossible is passing laws. So we are going to have some real challenges in terms of dealing with the economic relief that people still need to deal with the after effects and the continuing effects of the pandemic. And then I'm personally very concerned about state and local governments, which have a responsibility in this country to balance their budgets. They can't amass debt the way the federal government has, and they are in really dire straits. 
really battered. And the Republicans have really been blocking efforts to relieve those problems. And so I think it's going to be a core challenge for the Biden administration to to try to figure out how to get them some money. And control of the Senate will be decided by these uh, Georgia runoffs in January. Stacey Abrams was kind of the star of the election. You know, after Biden and Harris, she was the name that kept coming up for, for sort of this amazing turnout effort in Georgia. What do you think the chances are of, of, of that effort actually, you know, leading to winning those runoffs? You know, the the conventional wisdom answer is that the party that loses in November gets mad and comes back to the polls and the party that won gets kind of complacent and has more trouble turning out its people. The whole idea of a runoff outside of the normal date of an election is, you know, a kind of form of depressing turnout in itself because you're asking people to come back and do it again. So I think that's sort of a questionable structural choice in this particular state. There is there is a tremendous amount of energy on the left right now and a sense of how much these Senate races matter and a sense of excitement about Georgia in particular because of Stacey, uh, who was a law school classmate of mine, who I'm very fond of, I oh, should say. Um, <laughs> yes, it's an association that I never uh, forget to brag about. Um <laughs> In the name of disclosure, but really it's just bragging. So I, I think that you're going to just see a huge amount of money and energy and volunteers pouring into Georgia, and it's just going to be a, a turnout race. I mean, Biden's talked about sort of trying to heal America's divides. Republicans for uh, a very, very long time uh, seem to have uh, shown no interest in healing divides and seem to benefit from intensifying them. What do you think of this uh, this argument that, that Biden should pardoned him for crimes committed in office, but he hasn't pardoned himself first. I mean, would, would that would that help in any way or would it just sort of remove any disincentive uh, for a, a future president to commit crimes? I mean, I honestly think Trump is going to pardon himself and pardon all the people around him. I don't think he's going to leave it up to Biden. And in some ways, if he does that, it will make things easier for Biden um, because then he won't face this choice. I think a preemptive pardon is probably a mistake. Uh, it's important to have some accountability and to find out what happened. And I think we hardly know about the potential corruption going on within the government and that it's going to be important to ferret it out. I do worry about this question of, you know, potentially indicting a former president just looming so large that it blocks out the sun and takes over the discourse in this country. And I I don't personally think that it's worth it. I also think there is something about indicting the past head of state that is just like, it's very tricky when you start going down that road. In some ways, perhaps the more comfortable option are state-level prosecutions or investigations in New York in particular that could be about the Trump campaign or the Trump organization, more tied to President Trump's business interests. And because that's a different lever of government to pull, I think that might be a sort of more comfortable way to go in our federalist system. Alex, after... uh defeats like 2016, both in, in Britain and the US, liberals were urged to reach out to the winners and understand their concerns. <laughs> but now after a victory, liberals are urged to reach out to the losers and understand their concerns. Are voters for Trump or Brexit ever expected to uh, reach out to, to liberals and ask what is motivating um, you know, people who live in cities, for example? No, it's, it's always one-way traffic. Um, 
I was watching a conservative pundit the other day on Sky, and he directly equated Remainers refusing to accept Brexit to not Trump supporters refusing to accept Biden, but Democrats not being gracious enough to Trump supporters. So it seems to me that win or lose, it's always progressives who are expected to reach out. I've never seen any of these people tell their own side to try and understand our legitimate concerns. It, it basically, it's like when a headmaster called me into his office and asked me to shake hands with the bully that had made the last six years a living hell for me, and when I refused, I got suspended. Um, so, weirdly, it also contains the implicit admission that we're the adults in the room. Do you see what I mean? So, almost everyone, both on their side and on our side, has given up on the idea that Trump supporters might suddenly develop nuance and try to understand how we feel. And they're going, go on, you're the rational one, you be nice to them. Uh, I'm quite tired of it. And I think a lot of people are tired of it. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, who might be the next Trump running in 2024. But is the GOP like the real problem? Because it's not as if they were sort of a, a great bunch of lads who got led astray by a, a bad man. They've, they've been doing a lot of the things that Trump does for a long time, but just not tweeting about it. Yeah. Well, I think the next Trump to run in 2024 will be Trump. So I don't think he's going anywhere. I think you're right. The GOP has been riding those particular tigers for a long time, and now they don't know how to get off. I think there are chunks of the party that would like to get off, but how do they? You know, he can turn around and with a couple of tweets basically ruin your chances of being re-elected. So how do you deal with that? He might die soon. Everyone would heave a sigh of relief if that happened. Um, finally, Nina, so we've run through the options. We've run through running again, jail, death. He's also rumoured to want to start his own TV channel, um, and he was furious with Fox News for, for calling first Arizona and, and then the election. But there are newcomers like the very odd OANN um, and all kind of manner of sort of crank websites to keep the faith. Do you think this sort of right-wing bullshit sphere is going to grow even larger uh, sort of in exile. Absolutely. Uh, the past few years have shown not only that this sphere is going growing larger, but that it isn't even very niche anymore. And further to what Emily said, vis-a-vis -vis the very dangerous disinformation that is now being seeded about in illegitimate election. You know, if we have a situation where in the next four years, up to 70 million American voters believe the election was stolen. I think these kind of conspiracy theories are just going to divide the country even further. I was looking at a morning consult poll that came out just the other day that showed that prior to the election, 68% of Republicans said they had faith that the elections would be run freely or fairly. Um, after the shenanigans of the last week, that number now is down to 34%. So it's basically halved. And I think that anger, that sense of partisanship, the feeling that there's been this grave injustice is definitely going to feed the beast that's going growing um, uh, on this right-wing bullshit sphere. But like I said, it's not even that fringe anymore. It's basically become mainstream. <laughs> 
Now it's time for our regular feature, Overrated, Underrated, where one of the panel gets a category from the world of politics and has to let us know who is overrated and underrated. Uh, Emily Bazelon, you're our guest, and fittingly for this week, you're going to do pundits and poll watchers. Uh, who's overrated and underrated? Well, I think we had a we're having a big soul searching within the polling firm industry in the United States because the polls in really important ways were wrong. In key states, they were wrong about particular groups of voters. They were wrong. So in particular, the polls forecast that Joe Biden was going to win significantly more white, non-college educated voters than Hillary Clinton had won, that he was really going to eat into that base of Donald Trump's. And that just did not happen. And it matters that those polls were wrong. It affected, uh, you know, Biden's strategy. It uh, also changed how the Trump campaign presumably was conducting um, some of its thinking. And and I think that there's a, a real sense of like, you know, what do we do about this if we really not only can't rely on the polls for accuracy, but maybe they're actually misdirecting. One of the people I think is um, underrated in this area is a sociologist at the University of North Carolina named Zainab Tufeki, who has just been so shrewd and wise about a number of problems. She was one of the first people in the United States to really talk about the benefit of masks for preventing the spread of the coronavirus. And before the election, she wrote a really prescient piece about all the modeling that was going on based on polling averages and just warning people that it sort of gave the appearance of precision and accuracy that the polling averages were not going to live up to. So Zainab has been calling, I think, wisely for more deep reporting in communities. And I think one of the reasons we've come to be so reliant on the polls is we have less and less local journalism in the United States. And so we're missing these better tools for digging deeper into why people you know, have their political preferences. What's going on that explains a swing? How do we really understand what a community is experiencing? And so maybe there's a kind of silver lining here and the overrated nature of the polls, because if we see that they are um, not the great be-all, end-all tool of rigor that we've sort of imagined them to be, then maybe we'll start paying attention to these other signals that are actually really important. And, you know, of course, as a journalist, to me, the idea of reinvigorating local journalism is a good into itself. I, I saw an interview with her on CNN. She's terrific. And, and she was saying that she looks at exactly the same data that everyone else does. But instead of looking for an answer to questions she looks for a sto the story they tell and that that was her basic difference in approach is fantastic yeah, I love that. I mean, I think Zainab is, she grew up in Turkey, and there's this way in which she brings an outsider perspective to American politics and culture, which I think is so useful. Um, she was also someone who really saw early the very ambivalent or kind of two-sided effect of social media on organizing. So, you know, back in the Arab Spring, when everyone was celebrating Facebook and Twitter for encouraging um, or at least become, being the platform for protests against different authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, Zainab was saying, well, wait a second, you know, they also are platforms in which authoritarian regimes figure out how to spread misinformation and throw a wrench into the organizing. And maybe this kind of organizing doesn't go deep enough to really have the great effect that people think. So anyway, she is really someone to pay attention to, I find. She's great. And she's just, I think, written an Atlantic piece about what the who the, who the next Trump could be. 
Um, if you need to, if you need some more depressing <laughs> news, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, have you discovered Twitter.com, the microblogging site where you can post personal <laughs> updates, play fun hashtag games, or shatter your reputation in seconds? Recently, we've seen Tory MPs make self-prodically villainous statements about free school meals, and Northern Lion peer Lord Kilcooney described Kamala Harris as the Indian, for which he had to apologise. Unlike an unguarded comment in an interview, these are unforced errors. Why are so many politicians so bad at Twitter, and how has the platform warped our politics? Alex, I want to start on a on a, a positive note. Which politicians do you think do know how to use Twitter in a productive way? It depends what it depends what you mean by productive. I mean, Trump uses Twitter in a very productive way for his ends, for instance. But I wouldn't consider it generally conducive to a better world. Um, I, I think you have to draw a, a distinction between people who are in leadership position and people who are you know, the troops. So uh, backbench MPs have much more latitude. A, a, a sort of a member of the cabinet can change policy by tweeting the wrong thing. So I think Sadiq Khan is a, a good example of a, a front bench person that uses Twitter very well. And Jess Phillips is a very good example of a sort of backbench per- person that uses Twitter very well. Yeah, I think there's also something to be said for for not doing it too much. Yeah, you know, there's certain people like um, Stella Creasy, Lisa Nandy, um, who obviously is in the shadow cabinet, and and they just don't tweet that often. But when they do, it it's well judged. Mm. And and always the the common strand I find is that they seem authentic. So even if they're not doing their own tweets, you always get a sense that they're doing their own tweets. I, I think it's a big difference from people who obviously have a PR person put together their tweets because the people reading it feel they're getting to know that person, which I think can be the biggest benefit of using social uh, networking right. Um, and are apparent howlers from Tory MPs like Ben Bradley really blunders, you know, because he gets <laughs> ra- ratioed to death? Or are they actually sort of building a brand and playing to the base in in a Trumpian way? And if they've got lots of uh, angry libs after them, then, then kind of they've done the job. Uh, I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. So if you're asking whether Ben Bradley was testing the policy water in a strategic way, no, he wasn't. <laughs> it was clearly a fuck up. Um, but that doesn't mean people don't stumble upon upon things that play well that can then snowball the, you know there's a greek saying that that goes even a blind pig occasionally finds an acorn nina politicians are uh, are only human is um twitter literacy still sort of pretty bad for for a lot of people just this sense of, of, of the sort of the impact of, of the words absolutely i mean and politicians is a great way to look at it i mean these people who are building themselves up with this great political brand and then you know suddenly they stumble on twitter i mean who can forget for example uh something as innocent as ted cruz tweeting in 2014 that he was out on a little shopping trip and you know what he was buying was a tiger skin rug <laughs> of course illegal in the united states so twitter literacy <laughs> is bad amongst us in general and i think politicians are no 
different from the general public. And have you been impressed by Twitter's efforts during the election to flag up misleading tweets, uh, including including Trump's own? Like his his Twitter feed in the days after the election was was essentially unreadable hmm. because everything had warnings pasted over. Absolutely, and I think what's been very interesting is the degree to which both Twitter and Facebook have reacted to disinformation, not only in the context of the 2020 election, but COVID as well. And there's a lot of case studies now to prove that actually the flow of bad information can be stopped. Nonetheless, this is going to become a huge political issue because there is so much bad faith hand-wringing about censorship when, you know, fact-checking really really isn't censorship. But of course, we know that this is going to become a much bigger issue in um, US politics when it comes to how conservatives are going to build this narrative that kind of these liberal platforms are censoring uh, conservative thinkers. And because Twitter is so fast moving and transparent, lies or errors can be called out very quickly. Is disinformation on Facebook more dangerous because it's harder to see because we're not you know, the average Facebook user isn't seeing what's going on in all of these different groups. Yes, it is more dangerous, not only because Facebook can be used as a means to organize events. So how quickly the group, which actually Facebook ended up taking down uh, on Stop the Steal, uh, organizing people to kind of attend rallies, to go to polling booths across America while the vote was still going on, but also because so much of the information isn't even shared in public groups. A lot of it will be shared in private messages, private threads. This isn't just uh, only true for Facebook. It's also true for encrypted programs like WhatsApp, where we have no idea what the information is that is being shared um, out of public view. Um, Emily, journalists also get themselves into trouble. Um, and I noticed over like the last few years that many of the criticisms of Laura Kunzberg from the BBC and Maggie Haberman from the New York Times actually stem from, from sort of hasty tweets rather than their actual journalism. Do you think the sort of journalists, particularly very prominent ones, would be wiser to, to sort of stick to reporting and, and tweet uh, less? I mean, I think it's a real high wire act. So reporters have editors, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes they bridle or resist editing. But personally, I feel tremendously grateful to my editors <laughs> and and to the fact checkers I get to work with because they've saved me so many times. And I think that sometimes what you see with prominent journalists is that something written in haste without another pair of eyes to look at it comes across as more opinionated or inaccurate or just sort of like off in tone in a way that wouldn't happen if you were going through the normal editorial process. On the other hand, if you have a big presence on Twitter and you have a lot of followers, that is a way to become more famous. You get rewarded for it often with things like television appearances and speaking gigs. And so I think that journalists are feeding that part of their brand, um, a word that has become kind of inescapable in this context, in a way that's not very good necessarily for their institutions. And that's the real tension here that we're seeing. So yes, I do think that journalists should tweet less and tweet more carefully, but there are all kinds of incentives that are pushing in the other direction. Um, and there was a great quote from a Biden aide on CBS News going, it's very simple. We turned off Twitter. We stayed away from it. We knew the country was in a different headspace than social media would suggest. And we've said on, on this podcast that one of Keir Starmer's great strengths is that he's very not online. 
do you think it, you know that party leaders you know are are wise to to sometimes just ignore twitter and step out of whatever the kind of the heated debates are i mean yes actually it seems pretty genius on the part of the biden campaign that they ignored twitter and what i mean by that is that i think that activists and people with really strong opinions that are sometimes more extreme in either direction are the loudest on social media platforms and their tweets get amplified more and this is true on facebook too that we see the kind of content that the social media platforms see going viral they then amplify and you get rewarded for taking a stronger stance saying something that's more sarcastic and that can give you a distorted view of the electorate. It can make it sound like everyone has these really strong opinions when in fact most Americans are just not paying attention. And that's actually a completely different challenge. And so I, I when I read that quote from the Biden campaign, I thought, ah, wise. I mean, how how important do you think Twitter has been in, in changing politics and the coverage of politics over the over the last decade? I mean, obviously it seems like if you're on Twitter a lot, it seems like it's very important. I mean, do you think it has had, I don't know, negative effects or, or positive effects? Do you think it has been a significant factor that actually has r- sort of real effects? I think if you keep it in proportion, it's useful or certainly not negative, right? If you see it as one stream of feedback that you're getting that tells you about one slice of the world and how they're reacting, then that can be useful. And I know, you know, I use my Twitter feed deliberately to make sure I hear from people who I disagree with, to follow particular experts. It's like a shortcut to all kinds of different information if you curate it for that. On the other hand, you know, it has the pitfalls we're describing in which it can kind of amplify more extreme voices. And I think there are journalists who get kind of obsessed with it and think that it is representing public opinion as a whole. And I have worried for a long time, and this is going to make me sound really old, but I think journalists just don't leave the house and pick up the phone as much as they used to or as much as they should. And as someone who kind of came up through local newspapers and did a lot of both of those things, I feel like using Twitter or Facebook to find the voices of the people you're going to quote, like you're just, it's like the polls. You're going to end up with a kind of inaccurate representation. It's easier, and it, but it also uh, risks making us really lazy. Um, Alice, as it, with journalists, a lot of time people, if Laura Kunzberg tweets something, that is seen as the voice of the BBC. Um, <laughs> yeah. And likewise, an MP's tweet will, will probably get more attention than something they've said in Parliament. So why don't party whips do more to police Twitter use? Why aren't they just really, really just going, look, just, just, just shut up, don't get into arguments, just, mm. you know, push the, push the party line? I'm sure they try, but uh, are they trying hard enough? No, because... I was thinking about this. I think it actually creates political space for them. I think actually if a, if a backbench MP comes out and says something that is an outrider, then all you have to do as a government and say that's come out and say that's not our policy, this is our policy. And by comparison, your policy suddenly appears terribly reasonable because you have all these outriders that are tweeting crazy stuff. So I think it creates political space for them. Hmm. Well, to wrap up, I'm just going to ask each of you to pick uh, a bad political tweet from the Hall of Infamy. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to choose Emily Thornbury's image from Rochester in 2014 when she just tweeted an image of an England flag, three words, uh, got her sacked from Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet for allegedly mocking 
working class patriotism. And I think that was just, it was one of those signs that of how sort of dangerous Twitter could be because <laughs> she is actually a good politician. She was certainly not, I think, trying to, to troll. But just that kind of, it just shows how, um, how, how very quickly uh, something that probably seemed like a good idea at the time can go wrong. Uh, Nina, what about you? Um, I am going to go for um, Wiener, Anthony Wiener. Obviously, the the, the rising <laughs> the name so unfortunate given uh, the circumstances of this tweet. Obviously, a rising star of um, the the Democrats, and he ended his career when in 2011 he tweeted a very personal NSFW image, which he thought he was sending in a private message to a woman on Twitter, uh, and actually he tweeted it out. Um, and then he claimed that he had been hacked until eventually six days later he had to give a press conference admitting that he had been sexting women on Twitter. So the original dick pic scandal has to be up there. The, cla- oh, the classic I was hacked <laughs> excuse. <laughs> Always giving it a go. <laughs> Emily, what, what stands out for you as an example of a terrible political tweeting? What stands out for me are the just barrage of false tweets from President Trump about voting in the Mm. United States. You know, for the reasons we've been talking about, this is like, again, the core of our democracy. And President Trump has been attacking particularly mail-in voting in the United States in a way that he apparently thought would have some partisan benefit. But what it has mostly served to do is just undermine people's faith in the way that we conduct elections in the country. I can't choose one because there have just been so (laughs) many of them. (laughs) Um, At the New York Times Magazine, we did a cover that was just like you know, tweet after tweet after tweet, like layered on top of each other of false accusations of voter fraud. And to see these coming from the leader of a country, it's just, uh, it should remain shocking. Alex, what about you? Okay, so this is not really bad, okay? This is actually quite funny, but in many ways, it's the original tweet. It's the one that said to me, "Uh uh-oh, danger. And this is Ed Balls tweeting Ed Balls. Uh, and I should explain it to Emily. So Ed Balls was, was basically the, the opposition spokesperson for finance. And at some point, he was obviously searching for his name on Twitter. And instead of typing in the search box, he typed it in a tweet and tweeted just his name, Ed Balls. And it's nearly a decade <laughs> later, and people still reply to everything he says with Ed Balls. Oh man! <laughs> the name, well, the, the, also his name. Um, yeah, he, he already it, needed it to lent, avoid comedy. It lends <laughs> itself to low comedy, doesn't it's it? Very British humor, Emily. Much, much like Wiener. <laughs> I think I kind of get it, and I understand why you brought it up. <laughs> it's so charmingly innocent next to um, making false allegations of election fraud uh, 24-7. And yet ruinous. <laughs> and yet ruinous. <laughs> so we've reached the end of the show, but there's always time for our new segment, But Your Emails. We've deleted spam from John Redwood and scoured the inbox for the best questions. This week, Laura Hussey asks, I'm seeing some Twitter ridiculousness equating the Trump campaign's refusal to accept the results of the presidential election with the Remain side's efforts to stop Brexit. Are you able to counter this viewpoint with the level of scorn and contempt it deserves? Alex, do you have some scorn and contempt? (laughs) I have a lot. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can share it around. Because this criticism comes from people who are supporting Trump in his attempts to overturn the result. So I don't get what their point exactly is, that I have double standards, that they have double standards. What is it they're trying to say? Well, the, the, the analogy just seems so weird to me, because the equivalent would be if the day after the referendum, David Cameron just went, no, there's been election fraud, um, I'm not accepting that Leavers won, I'm not resigning... And we're not leaving the EU. And we're not leaving the EU. As opposed to what actually happened, which was there was a year of people feeling very gloomy and defeated before, you know, sort of gradually getting together a campaign for a second referendum. And I just wonder whether it's a kind of this idea that the worst sin in politics is hypocrisy. No, it goes back to exactly what we were talking about, that whatever happens, it's the progressive's fault. So if I accept uh, defeat in an election, I'm going to be torn a new asshole from my own side for giving up. If I don't accept defeat, I'm going to be torn a new asshole from, from, from the other side for being a sore loser. There's no winning because the standard expected of me, as opposed to a Trump supporter, is so much higher that I am set up to fail it constantly. Which makes me think, Emily, do you think the sort of hypocrisy is sort of... I don't know, so established that, that, that it's just sort of not really a weakness anymore. I was thinking of like Lindsey Graham, who said um, when the Republicans opposed hearings for Merrick Garland in 2016, you know, well, if the, if the boot's on the other foot, basically, you know, you can, you can call me out on it because we would definitely not try and appoint a Supreme Court justice in an <laughs> election year. And then he just went ahead and did it. Does, does, sort of, does hypocrisy sort of matter anymore? Is there any power in The Daily Show digging up an old clip and going, ah, he said this then, but now you know, he's saying this now? I mean, the difference, I think, in what you're talking about is Lindsey Graham, the hypocrisy is very direct, right? Like, it's absolutely a one-on-one contradiction. It's on all fours. And so that, I think, is fair to expect people to explain themselves it didn't matter to the voters in South Carolina. They reelected Lindsey Graham anyway. But I think it was totally, uh, you know, a good area of inquiry for anyone who was trying to understand what Graham's thinking was. The other broader kind of analogies of like, oh, you fought against um, the results of Brexit or in this country, you know, oh, Democrats backed Al Gore when he was trying to get a recount in Florida. Those are very inexact comparisons, right? I mean, Al Gore was trying to get a recount when he was behind by like 500 votes or even 300 votes. That is an election where you might really wonder who won. Whereas we're in a current situation in the United States where President Trump has lost between four and six states that he may decide to dispute. And there are tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of votes Mm. that are uh, making the difference in the Electoral College, not to mention millions in the popular vote. So I think part of the problem is like the minute you decide that something is hypocrisy, you sort of buy into the assumption that there's like a one-on-one comparison here. And it's actually important to point out the differences. Also in a state where the other guy's brother was in charge of the election. Right, was the governor, exactly. You're talking about that's, former Governor Jeb Bush. That's not exactly yes. the same as Georgia that has sort of Republican people 
um, looking in charge. <laughs> right. And in fact, they've turned on a Republican secretary of state, you know, the, the senatorial candidates um, and, and the congressional winners in Georgia, which is this kind of amazing spectacle where essentially these politicians are saying, we lost the election and now we're going to blame the person who ran the election because we not because we have evidence that anything went wrong, but essentially because we don't like the result. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I find it absolutely ridiculous because exactly as you already pointed out, what's happened in 2016 is that we accepted the result of the referendum and then we got told you're losers we want it harder we just want a harder brexit and what's happening right now is that donald trump is not accepting the result of the election when it's very clear as emily just pointed out it's not even close and there's so many states where biden is now ahead even if the states where donald trump wants to contest the litigation where the votes are a bit closer uh, they were recounted and found in his favor for example in georgia or Arizona, Biden would still win the election with Pennsylvania. So it's absolutely a pernicious disinformation campaign that's been seeded from the White House by the president himself over the duration of this year, because this eventuality is exactly what he feared. I'm just very disappointed that it looks like the final um, percentages of the popular vote won't be the magic 52-48 ratio, <laughs> which would just be the, the perfect sort of complete that sort of historical parenthesis. Well, that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Nina Schick. Thank you. Alex Andreu. Thanks for having me. And our guest, Emily Bazlan. Thanks so much. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster, 2020 repolished version by Corner Shop, and the traditional salute to our Patreon backers. Hello, and a big thank you from me to Jonathan Spence, Daniel Cooper, and Dr. Gavin Brown. And thanks from your support to Marie, Gareth Creel, and Nigel Bradley. Finally, thanks from me to Adam Hood, Robert Pine, and Ruth Kroll. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Doreen Linsky with Alex Andreu and Nina Schick. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yanana Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Ed Balls. I mean, Alex Reese. Oh, God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Thank you.